Today on the Dolby Creator Talks podcast, we are continuing our coverage of the 2024 Academy Awards with the sound team behind one of the biggest films of the year, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which is nominated for 13 Oscars, including today's category, Best Sound. The four gentlemen joining us today are certainly no strangers to the Academy Awards. Sound designer and supervising sound editor Richard King has been nominated eight times, including two this year, because he supervised not only Oppenheimer, but also Maestro. He has already won four Academy Awards. Re-recording mixer Gary Rizzo has six nominations and two wins, both for his work previously with Christopher Nolan. Oppenheimer marks re-recording mixer Kevin O'Connell's 22nd nomination. He's now looking for his second win. And two-time Oscar-winning production sound mixer Willie Burton is celebrating his eighth nomination. So what was it like for this all-star sound team to work with director Christopher Nolan, who is known for being very particular about his films are shot on film and also how they are recorded, which he prefers to be as organic and practical as possible. And that was no small feat for a movie that depicts the inner life and the mind of the brilliant father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer. So I wanted to start the conversation by asking Richard King about the possibilities that opened up for the film's sound design with that decision to be inside Robert Oppenheimer's mind, who can see and understand the universe on a subatomic level. I think he developed a, a, a feeling. He, he wanted to develop a... Um, like a feeling towards it to, to understand it in a, in a visceral way. Right. And so the, the, um, the object was to make these events, these visions convey the incredible latent power in the strong force in the, in the energy that holds atoms together and what would happen if that force could be tapped into and released and used. Um, so, you know, we didn't want to use small microscopic sounds for these events. We wanted to use galactic events, huge events, so that you weren't sure if you were looking at, at planets and, uh, and celestial bodies interacting, or if you were looking at quantum particles interacting. Um, and we used a whole variety of, uh, of naturally recorded sounds, um, uh, I don't really want to go, you know, name specific things, but it, w it was just a search basically to convey that, that notion of um, this incredible latent power that ultimately we see in the Trinity test. Um, when, when, a, when a sphere of, when a sphere of plutonium of metal, basically the size of a softball causes that 20 kiloton explosion, it's, it's quite amazing to think about that that's, that's the explosive, you know, that's, that's the, that's the, 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 the stuff that blew up. Um, and, and so he's beginning to, to grapple with these notions of, you know, of, of, uh, of, um, of that energy. And um, there's also that cool uh, uh, kind of interacting wave, uh, those interacting wave shots that they did Um conveying kind of the, the duality of, of particles 
or of, of light being a wave and a particle, of par even quantum particles being waves and particles. Um, and they did all those practically. Those were all like the shot of Oppenheimer laying in bed with those bands whipping in front of them were all done practically on the set. So we wanted to adhere uh, pretty closely to natural sounds in, in conveying all that. So you guys have all worked now on multiple projects uh, with Christopher Nolan. So I'm just kind of curious how the process works in in working with him. Richard, do you do you read the script before he goes off and shoots, or at what point do you get involved? Are you feeding stuff to the to the editing room while while they're editing? Kind of what's how does how does how does the sound design process begin? Yeah, I usually uh, am invited to read the script before he goes off to shoot. We have a, a conversation. Um, about the film, but also about practical matters and logistics and timing of, of things. Um, and, and then he goes off to shoot, which gives me a great opportunity to research and, and to begin reading about the subject at hand. And uh, especially in the case of, of Oppenheimer and also of, of Dunkirk, um, there's a lot of information available about these real world uh, events. And um, so I, totally went down the rabbit hole of reading everything I could find on uh, Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. Uh, I even read Chris Wallace's book, which is called something like uh, Countdown 1945. Or, and, but they all, they all contained slightly different versions of the events and different little, little nuggets of information that I was able to use later on. And uh, through uh, the, participants, the scientists and the military uh, people involved, um, their, their, uh, their, their, um, their description of the, of the Trinity test, for instance, was really interesting. Um, and they all mentioned sound in some way that was kind of unique and interesting and, and sometimes using the words that I wouldn't, you wouldn't expect to hear. So that was, it was a really unique experience to them, both visually and sonically. And, um, and yes, and then I generally start actually start the film about the time they stop shooting and start sending me scenes or reels. Um, and then how it works is we never do a spotting session. We, I just start sending the material and then I get feedback from Chris. So it's, a uh, it's, um, an evolutionary process and a, uh, um, much more efficient, I think, than having an abstract conversation about sound uh, and trying to like, like, um, paint yourself into a corner that maybe later on you'll have a better idea. But if you've had this blueprint that you feel like you have to adhere to, then often the the best ideas are never explored because you don't you're not thinking you know you're not thinking about options or alternatives. And then Gary and Kevin, for you guys, um, like, are there temp mixes? Does Chris Nolan do, t I mean, he's at this point, he's earned the, the right from the studio not to do test screenings unless he damn well wants to do a test screening. So what is that process? Or, or, or do you guys just kind of start pre-mixing and, and mix the movie? The true answer to that is that temp one, 
um, which is the director's cut of the film, you know, the, not that Chris doesn't get final cut, but that his initial build of the film, the one that he shows to the studio for the first time, that is, um, the foundation of the final mix. That is, um, we're in the, the era of, uh, mixing progressively. So temp mix one leads to two, leads to three. If there is a three, which leads into the final, there's no work that is really um, left behind unless we choose to modify it or leave it behind. But that first temp mix is a really important temp um, because it really is the foundation of what Chris's intentions are. Um, certainly a, a lot of the design work um, has been presented to Chris from Richard, as, as he mentioned, and we're getting the first pass at score that our composer has delivered to us. And, and so a lot of the big picture building blocks are put together. And that's really the stage where Chris can begin to feel out what's working and, and really what needs more time spent or whether it's more music or more resources or more thought. Uh, than anything else. That first temp is really crucial. There are typically two, sometimes three temps, rarely a fourth. I don't actually know if we've ever had a fourth, but the first one is the crucial one. And it's usually about eight days. Sometimes there's a ninth day, which is for nowadays, like that's a lot of time for a temp. Most of the temps that I work on, I can't speak for anybody else, are two days or three days. But it's an important one for Chris. And we allocate nine days for it the only thing i would add to that is 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 uh that uh, you know that was a three-hour movie so I, I think eight days was probably appropriate for that first tent mix um and there there are no pre-dubs you go that first tent mix is your beginning stages of 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 the uh the, of the final mix and then you you do like gary said uh maybe three at the most four if we did that temp dubs and then you just start the final mix everything remains in unit form kevin's absolutely right there are no pre-dubs so everything is in its original unit form going forward we never exclusively take time um, on the dub stage per se to work on one department of sound exclusively without anything else we're always working in the big picture where all of us are present and everything is looking at what would be final presentation of course a lot of time is spent in editorial creating premixes of the sound effects. We couldn't do a temp dub in eight days unless the sound effects were pre-dubbed. But not for dialogue, though. Dialogue typically comes out of uh, Willie's... Dial dialogue is raw. Yeah, dialogue is coming out raw, but expert expertly cut by Dave Bach. If we can give Dave Bach a shout-out. Dave Bach and the dialogue uh, department, they, you know, they, um, they take very good care of me, and... Um, uh, you know, we're just constantly tweaking and, and building, constantly building all the way through. And when we do get beyond the temps, when we get into our final mix process, it's um, six weeks. Um, for the past several films, it's been six working weeks where the workflow is we start on Monday, wherever Chris feels like we need to start. And then we work through Thursday, end of day and Friday morning we will screen the movie in its entirety from beginning to end, whether it's on the lot in a screening room or whether it's in um, a screening room somewhere in the world, um, you know, somewhere in Los Angeles, usually because that's where our dub stage is. But um, we will every Friday take a look at the film. And after we screen it, we'll talk about it for a little bit. And then Friday after lunch, we fire it up again. We go back around the horn and we do that for six consecutive weeks. That's a really interesting process because obviously, uh, you know, most of the time on a film of the size and scale 
of, you know, one of these pictures, you know, Gary and Kevin, you guys would split off and you'd be in separate stages for a couple of weeks, pre-mixing effects and pre-mixing dialogue. And then you'd come together. So I'm kind of curious from a creative standpoint, do you feel like this approach is better? Like, how does this, and, and why, why wouldn't more filmmakers want to adopt this kind of approach? For me, whatever works best for Chris is works what works best for me. And that's his process. And I'm very respectful of his process. One of the things that is a huge advantage of that is watching the movie every single week and getting a feel for how that is. Generally in mixes, we don't do that until the very end. And then we have a day and a half to fix it. This way we get to see it every single week. Uh, and then we spend the next week refining what is and what isn't working. And, you know, Chris kind of decides, um, what he thinks he would like us to focus on that next week. And that's what we uh, spend our time focusing on. And I think um, for, I, I actually think it's a very, uh, very good process when you're working with Chris and, and, and his method. I, I like it. I think it's a good way to work. Yeah, I'll absolutely back that up. I think that as the film is evolving, it's evolving in different ways. All the departments are evolving in different ways. And the best way to see it cumulatively coming together is to watch it every Friday. Um, it's the best way to know how your movie is going is to watch it as much as you can. And once a week feels really good, especially when you have a three hour movie in front of you, it feels like you are hustling all the time, which is really good because I think that encourages you to make, uh, to go with your gut. It encourages you to think quick, but think thorough and go with your gut instincts. And of course I'm always looking over at Richard or to Kevin and say, you know, do you think this idea is good if we could do it? And, you know, I'm getting the same thing back from these guys. I think that, you know, we're, we're moving, but it's a really, really good way, especially for Chris and how Chris thinks to do it at this pace, at that rate, and with that many opportunities to see the film. And plus, you know, it, it was a, a three hour movie. I, I don't think we rarely worked any overtime. I mean, you rarely work. Uh, I mean, we may have worked, picked up one Saturday if we worked at all. Generally, it's no overtime and it's usually on. Uh, and I think you get your best work done when you're not working 16 hours a day, which unfortunately a lot of these schedules end up doing that. So for me, it's a very productive way to work. And uh, and I really uh, embrace it. Willie, I want to talk. I want to bring you into the conversation. Okay. These, these, guys, right. these guys <laughs> talked about the process process of getting ready to go work on a Christopher Nolan movie. And I come, I'm kind of want to see what, right. what's your experience. Like, so you obviously, you must read the script before the production happens, but you know, you're trying to, you read, you're reading the script and trying to figure out like, you know, how are you going to capture all of this? And of course, Mr. Nolan is, is notorious about not wanting any ADR in his films. And he wants all of those production you know, production uh, tracks to be as usable as possible. So it puts a lot of pressure on you. How do you, how do you prepare for a Christopher Nolan shooting, especially one like Oppenheimer? This is my second movie with uh, Chris. And uh, I went in for the interview for Tenet, which was my first film. And uh, so we talked about, you know, the project. And, but the thing about it in an interview, he never told me how he really works. So I thought, okay, you know, that, you know, just like every other director, you know, you just go in and you put, you put the radio mics on people, the body mics and, uh, and you're good to go. I mean, you know, so, but one thing that before I left the interview, you know, and he said, well, how do you work? I said, well, I just try to get great sound, but I do, you know, I use a little bit of the old school and the new school. So I thought, okay, um, I left the interview thinking, I don't think I have this job. 
you know, because it didn't, I don't think the interview went well as far as I was concerned. A week later, I, you know, I get a call and said, Chris wants you to work on the movie. Oh my God. Okay. But anyway, to move forward, I, I had to learn fast how Chris works. And the thing about it, he never told me, my boom man, we didn't really know. And so we got on the set and uh, here, you know, we we got the wireless boom and everything. And Chris looked around and said, where's the cable? Cable, what do you mean cable? I mean, you know, so he, with Chris, you have to do hard wires. He hates radio mics, he hates the sound. So for a movie like Oppenheimer, I mean, you know, I had an opportunity to do in the holiday season. I was out of town in Atlanta, Georgia, working on another film. And uh, so when I came home for Christmas, I had an opportunity to go in to read the script. And before I read the script, you know, even uh, Thomas Hayslip, the producer, says to me that, really, this is your movie. I said, what do you mean my movie? It's a serious dialogue movie. Or really? Okay. So I, I get the script. It is this big, thick script, approximately 187 pages. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is two movies. But, uh, this, you know, this is like, this is, so I read, I read, and I said, oh, there's a lot of stuff going on here. So, but the most important thing working with Chris, you learn that you have to be prepared. You have to over-prepare yourself. And fortunately enough, in prep, I mean, Chris gives you enough time, you know, to prep. Uh, unfortunately, because I was out of town, I wasn't able to scout locations and all of that. And that's part of what he wants his sound mixer to be a part of. He wants you to be there. He wants you to deal with any potential problems that might come up in the future. So, but I wasn't there, but being, you know, uh, a veteran like I am, I, I know what to expect, you know. So, uh, you know, I make sure I have all the equipment I need and I'm calling up uh, uh, location sounds. And can you make me like four extra long cables? I mean, you know, to to run my mics and everything and, now, of course, I mean, you know, then once we, we start off, I mean, you know, then uh, Chris, you know, gives us an opportunity. One thing about about him is that he really wants great sound. He wants the best sound that you can get, but he wants it on a boom. He doesn't want it on a wire. So uh, any times that, you know, we're using the IMAX camera, for example, and the IMAX camera, camera is very noisy. But usually he would do the wide shots with the iMac and then uh, the iMac camera. And then if it's uh, 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 a lot of dialogue, he'll use a 70 millimeter for dialogue. Uh, but there's times that we have, you know, short scenes like three, four, five lines. Uh, but what we have to do is that he will say cut print and we will, he will react, the actors will react that scene just like they did it on camera. Are we doing it? Wow. Really? The same pacing. Oh yeah. That's how we do it. I mean, you know, we just, we, 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 he says, okay, as soon as he said cut, he says, I want, I want to be ready to go. I mean, it could be like a long dollar shot. We have to track the actors. They will walk that dollar shot. You know, they will walk that distance. You know what I mean? And doing sound on, on the boom, on the hard wire. And that's how he gets his few lines in. But we don't, you know, we won't, he won't do two or three pages like that. Basically just, you know, like where there's maybe four or five, six lines. I mean, where like the post-production, uh, these guys here can lay it in and can figure out how to do it, which they, I have to say that, you know, uh, I give my hats to this production, you know, post-production team. They're incredible. I mean, when I, when I hear, when I saw this movie for the first 
time. The sound was just incredible. Things that I would not even believe that was going to be in the movie was there. So that, you know, but, but that's, you know, it just, and uh, you, like I said, with Chris, you just have to be overly prepared. You have to think of everything. You have to think, you have to think, oh, if I need this, I better get it, whatever you need. And like in the, in the hearing, when we had all those hearings and everything, uh, we try to make sure we get with props and say, if we have, you know, uh, period microphones, can we get these microphones to work? Even though I use the modern day microphone, but we try to give a comparison between between the 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 uh, uh, period microphones and the and today's microphones, where it, at least it give post production, you know, uh, uh, different choices to work with. I, I'm just blown away by that. That's really fascinating. Like I, I love this idea of like you know uh, other directors will you know pause at the end of a take for, and get room tone, but you guys actually go again just without the camera and get a get a dialogue pass without the camera, and we get it, and we get it. and and also Chris allows us to do. We, you know, we do like sound effects, background. If I see something that we need, I mean, we'll get it, you know, and we try to get everything we can for post because knowing that he wants to use, uh, he wants to use all his, uh, original, you know, track on production. Now, whether he totally use it all, I think he used most of it anyway. Uh, and, you know, post production team can, uh, they know what's used and what's not used, but, when I see the movie and everything, I don't know the difference. It sounds like it's all used, that he used it all for them. That's amazing. But yeah, but he's amazing to work with. And, uh, you know, and you just got to be on your job and you just got to be there doing what you need to do. And the most important things compared to uh, uh, some of the other directors, I mean, you know, like they won't have time. They said, we don't have time for sound. We need to move on and we don't have time to do this again. Chris will do it again. He will take the time because he wants to write. And that's one thing, you know, uh, hats off to him. Makes my job, you know, easier. Amazing. And then Richard, that material all comes into your editorial team. And, and are those, are those wild dialogue takes? Or are they pretty, are they pretty close? Or are they, are they able to snug in? Yeah, they take some work, but, uh, but they are able to, to be used. We use them. Um, and uh, Chris does like the production track. Uh, and we use every bit of movement and and uh, um, uh, you know tone, location, sound that we can. Um, in fact, the 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 challenge with with the sound design is to make it sound like production sound. That is to not make anything sound uh, too clean or too pretty or too you know if if it's too pretty, it's it's kind of going to stand out and not feel real. And he likes the he likes the tangible reality of that production sound that's recorded on set. And, um, and, uh, you know, if we do any looping, uh, it's, it's sometimes it's a word. Sometimes it's, it's a word that, that can't be heard or, or, uh, um, uh, or even a syllable, even, you know, they'll record the line and then Dave Bach will like surgically work it and Gary will work it. And, um, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, the goal is to make everything you hear in the film sound like it was recorded on the day. And for me, uh, also is that, you know, I, I'm accustomed to like, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, the actors are wearing shoes and sometimes the shoes are noisy. They're walking on hardwood floors or whatever. So I'm used to putting carpet down. We put carpet down and stuff. And Chris says, take that carpet out of there. It's like, what do you mean? I mean, it's too noisy. I mean, it's too, no. He said, no. Remove that carpet. I want to hear 
well, you know, Chris, some of the lines, uh, you know, they just been buried in and knowing. So, but he gives us a break. I mean, he works with us, I have to say, because there was one scene that, you know, the, uh, they're standing on the, the actors are standing on top of the steps and, and all the other actors are walking down on the step, pound, pounding all this noise. And I said, Chris, no, this, this really doesn't work. I've got to fix this. So he did let me carpet each step to soften it. I mean, you know, but he knows, I mean, you know, but he's, no, no, take that carpet out of there. So it's funny when I hear him say that because we're just trying to make it better, but he wants to hear the footsteps and everything. I feel like you guys kind of caught, got a little bit of a double whammy on this film because obviously you've got, you've got the IMAX cameras, which I think Gary, I I heard you one time talk to, describe them as sounding like a lawnmower engine, like on, on the set. Uh, and then the, 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 the 65 millimeter Panavision, uh, cameras as well. But you've also got Killian Murphy, who is, uh, who's a very soft talker. I noticed that again, you know, when I was watching the film, uh, again, thinking about the preparation. He is not an actor who is, who, he's not projecting for the back of the house. So it, 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 I mean, obviously you get a great intimacy from that, but it makes, it makes that even more challenging, you know, for you and, all the way through to Gary to mixing those dialogue tracks. Well, absolutely. I mean, we use, I mean, for scenes like that with, with, with him, we use a shotgun microphone because we sort of have to. We use a cement uh, to try to pull him out. And, you know, and the mic, it's pretty good at pulling, you know, the low levels out. It's not what I would want, but at least that we make sure that it's good enough to use. And post-production just enhances from that point on. But the the Fuller Lodge scene in particular is a a really interesting example because for, I'll say, at least four, if not five of our final mixed weeks, the the dialogue track that was in the Fuller Lodge scene was uh, a wild dialogue-only track that Willie was talking about earlier where the camera wasn't rolling. And we had that in for a very long time, and then it was really right at the end that it just was an itch that Chris wanted to scratch where he was like, all right, let's, let's get the sync take. And we pulled up the sync take for, you know, for Killian at the podium. And it's just smothered in IMAX. And, um, but we worked it and, you know, there's a lot of new tools that have come out at the time when we were mixing it, we wrapped our show in January of 2023. It's funny that the development of a lot of the noise reduction software came out between like, March and April of 2023 and, you know, between March and April and September. So we didn't have a lot of the tools that actually are accessible today, but there were um, a handful of these software based tools that, uh, that we used to suppress as much as gently as we could to salvage that synchronous take. So the one that's in the film now is the sync take that Willie recorded when they were shooting the picture. And in some of that sequence, not only is it shot in IMAX, but there was a practical effect of the projector of the, the wall behind Oppie warbling, which was in, you know, there was another projector running on top of the IMAX camera. So like we're compounding our noise here. (laughs) Like that was a real, that was a, that was a situation, but you know, it's like any other challenge in the mix. And if, you know, we all kind of put our heads together and tried to figure out what was the right answer for that particular puzzle. Chris isn't always bothered by that noise either. You know, sometimes we integrate that into the track because he believes sometimes it adds tension. And so sometimes we intentionally leave in. We don't, in other words, Gary isn't said to take it all out. It's, 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 it's taken out in, you know, uh, increments at a time until Chris feels it's, it, it may be adding to the scene in a way that's positive. 
and it's done on the dub stage. It's not taken into a, you know, a pre-dub stage. It's not put under the microscope somewhere else. It happens live where Chris can kind of respond moment by moment, tweak by tweak as we, you know, little, little baby steps of noise reduction to decide how far is too far. Like Chris is part of that decision-making. I'm glad you, you, you brought up the, the, the Fuller Lodge sequence, uh, Gary, because, uh, you know, longtime listeners of this podcast know that before you get nominated for an Academy Award for Sound, there's a preliminary round that you go through, which is the, you know, the short list. And you're one of 10 movies that are invited by the Academy to come and present, you know, basically a 10 minute reel of the work. Um, and so I, w- I was really curious to see that. Uh, you know, I think in some ways, probably the, the Trinity test scene would have been the more the, the obvious choice to submit as the, the showpiece sound sequence for Oppenheimer. But you guys decided to not do that. You went with this with this uh, um, this lodge scene. And so I'm just kind of curious, uh, um, you know, maybe Richard, you can talk about to me, there's so much going on in that sequence from a creative sound design perspective and the use of sound to get into the subjective perspective of Oppenheimer's mind. And just t- t- tell me about like the rich possibilities for sound of that sequence and why you ult- why, why the team ultimately decided to, that that was the proper showcase for the best of the work. It's one of the moments, one of the, one of the scenes of the film where we really get inside Oppenheimer's head and, um, uh, and, 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 and experience his, his, um, his confusion and, uh, anxiety and uh, his his um, his feelings about this work that they've done that they've that they've concluded, and now this horrible events happen that uh, he feels very much responsible for. Um, and uh, that was actually the first bit of the film that I saw was one of the one of the takes of um, Killian uh, at the podium. Uh, I. I was asked to attend the last day of dailies, which was here. Uh, they were back in LA by then. The last day of dailies was here at the lab. And um, he just wanted me to start thinking about what sounds we could use for that, um, that shaking background, that, that sense of Oppenheimer becoming ungrounded, kind of unmoored and um, uh, um, having a, a bit of a panic attack really. Um and so it's it's very much from his point of view, from his uh, through his eyes, through his perspective in that moment. And uh, yeah, it was it was um, it was Gary's idea to use that uh, that sequence. Um, and I, I think a wise one in, in hindsight, because there is there's a lot going on sonically and a lot of interesting ideas. And it was a scene that evolved, I think, over the the course of the picture edit and through the sound edit and through the mix. It it was a scene that we worked on right up until the end, pretty much. You know, we provided a lot of elements. I provided a lot of raw material to to Chris and, and Jen Lane, the editor. And they really made the big decisions about, for instance, pulling out all the voices in a particular spot. And then we you know we created these kind of nuclear winter sounds towards the end of the sequence. And Willie uh, got all the all the stomping, which is a motif that's used throughout the film. Whenever Oppenheimer's feeling a little bit unglued, those I think it was like seven or eight ten mics that Willie had planted around the, the lodge there it was actually shot in Fuller Lodge, the actual Fuller Lodge at Los Alamos. And um, 
and we you know we added some uh, foley details and we added some some low end uh, uh, thumpy kind of emphasis to the stomps, but all of that is is production. And then you know the scene just evolved as we it, we tried to make it more. It, it's it's really a horrifying sequence and kind of a uh, a nightmare uh, sequence uh, to me. And 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 that's I think what ultimately. Chris was was looking for both with the sound effects and with the music. I would love to for you guys to talk a little bit more about that exploration and, and how and how it landed on on you know where it did. I you, you know I think I think a more traditional approach to even that kind of like internalized you, you know kind of getting disturbed uh, feeling from him would have been you know to play with to play with the mix and 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 muffle the sounds and kind of get into into a little bit of his, of his agitated state, but it was sort of a sort of a genius move to kind of pick and choose isolated sound elements, but play them incredibly clean and clear. The way your mind almost kind of does when you get in a super stressful state and you're just you just pick specific things out. I'm just fascinated about that sequence, and I feel like you kind of did it again, like you you had done that previously in the moment at the Trinity test scene, right in that moment of silence before the shockwave hits them. So I'm kind of curious, like. Where, how that approach came about and how you, you all landed on it. Well, of course, the Trinity test scene was, that, that's physics. He, he, he was being, being accurate to the distance, uh, being accurate as far as the distance from the, the, the bunker to the tower. But it, it's interesting in the, the, the Trinity scene also, also I think it, it takes the audience back. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's surprising how many people comment upon that silence, which... I think if they were there in the moment, they they would, you know, viscerally understand. Oh, it's the tower's ten miles away, so I'm not going to hear it yet. But in a film, you expect to hear the bang when you see the flash. So, I think it, it kind of puts the it kind of gives the audience a, a a moment of 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 confusion and 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 they're kind of in in shock and awe, like like Oppenheimer and the rest of the, of the uh, uh, observers are, and. Um, the bang is basically the conclusion of the event, right? That's the the moment where oh, it worked, and we're still alive, and the world didn't blow up, and um, and it's, it's that's kind of when the celebration starts. Um, the 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 Fuller Lodge scene; um, those decisions were made really early, as far as far as where the silence begins, what we hear, the fact that we don't hear voices but we hear movement. Um, those decisions were made by Chris and Jen in the editing room. That was in the, in their original, you know, work tracks. Um, so, uh, we elaborated upon that quite a bit ultimately, but that basic, that basic design was, um, was an early idea of his. And I think for the very reason you said it, it, it's not expected. It's not, uh, you know, you, you don't really want to, don't want to, at that moment, you don't want to do anything trite or, or expected. It's such a profound moment in the film. You want to really try to, try to uh, put in the audience's head what Oppenheimer must have been going through. Um, and, and just, you know, seeing the, the revelry and the, and the nausea sort of in the same room, you know, is, uh, is quite, um, it's, 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 it's quite nightmarish. 
And uh, I think a lot of that is due to the fact that you're kind of unnerved by the weird things you're hearing. You're not hearing things you should be hearing, but you're hearing this other stuff. Why am I hearing that and not that? So it's it's kind of off, you know, um, unsettling in that in that sense. And the use of dynamic range, I believe, adds to that in both scenes, not only in Trinity, but also in Fuller Lodge, when things do get hauntingly quiet and you're only hearing oppy breathing, you can feel the anxiety that he's got. You can feel the guilt that he's carrying. You can feel all that. And then to be hit with the bang of reality in Fuller Lodge when, yeah, he does realize everybody is cheering him on and screaming in in epic proportions and the stomping of the feet, which yes, has been a motif through the movie. You understand he's been carrying this guilt throughout the, throughout the film, throughout the edit, the nonlinear editing that we use and, and the storytelling that we use, he's been carrying it the whole time. And that's the scene when you, re when you recognize, when you realize the magnitude of it and how heavy, how heavy it actually is. The dynamic range is a tool. It's a, a tool that we use in Trinity. And when it, we do go from very, very quiet to very, very loud for that moment, you get people's attention. It's effective. Kevin, I want to, I want to ask you, uh, uh, about the score. We had, uh, we had Ludwig Gorenson on the, on our podcast, uh, a couple months ago, uh, talking about the score for Oppenheimer. And uh, I feel like there, there, there are moments when Ludwig's score really, um, steps forward and really drives uh, the, the, the picture I'm thinking about the scene early on in the film with, with Robert, Robert Oppenheimer, where he's, he's studying in Germany and it's, it's really almost everything else drops out of the track and it's really Ludwig's score. That's kind of pushing things forward. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, what was the, what was the process of integrating Ludwig's score into the mix? You know, Richard, did you have sketches when you were editing? Like what you tell me about the process of working with Ludwig's music and, and making, uh, that makes as powerful as, as it is. Ludwig did a brilliant job <clears throat> of combining uh, an, an amazing orchestral score driven by, you know, long strings, short strings, pizzicato strings along and, 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 and blending it with a electronic a synth type uh, elements to that. And sometimes the orchestral elements would start and then the synthetic electronic elements would take over. And that's one of the few uh, areas in the film were actually panned score through the surrounds. And at first I wasn't sure Chris was going to dig it. And then I think he actually kind of liked it. And then like after a few reels, he said, are you going to do that thing? And I said, sure, let's do it. You know, we'd pan it through the surrounds. Um, and, uh, and, and I, and listen, man, that Trinity test is all, you know, not just the sound effects were great too, but Ludwig, the buildup in that score, in that Trinity test was, was amazing. And, and obviously, you know, you have to start here and we have to end here and we have to hear all the bits and pieces of dialogue in between. So that was a, a pretty challenging thing, but very rewarding uh, in the end. Uh, and we were very gratified about how that came out. When did the score show up for you guys? Did you have access to it before the the, the, the mix? Well, Richard, while you were fair, while you were editing, or was that a late was that a late coming element? Yeah, there were, there was a version of it. Um, uh, uh, in fact, I think Lud was was composing while they were shooting, and so they had a had a mock up basically of the music uh, while we were editing, but honestly, didn't refer to it that much. A full sound effects, sound design track can exist alongside a, a full music track. And, uh, you know, the way, the way my interpretation of the mix went was that 
the beginning was very music heavy, and then it sort of be, sort of came to a, a, a middle ground in the, by the end. Um, in that, Chris likes to hear the sound of the world that the characters are inhabiting, um, as well as the music. And uh, so we cut the soundtrack, sound effects, sound design, as if there wasn't going to be any music in the film. And that gives us all the options when we when we mix. And one of the things, uh, uh, Glenn, about that was, uh, that's the scene that I was talking about a little earlier when, I, when they say, can you, can you hear the music? Can you feel the music? That's one of the things about Chris's mu- movies is sound is so important to Chris that he just doesn't want you to go to the movies and hear his movie. He wants you to feel his movie. And I think that if we can help him achieve that, then we feel like we've done our job. Kevin, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it kind of it kind of leads me into, I, I guess, my last question for you guys. You know, you, you've you've all worked um, now with Christopher Nolan for multiple pictures. He seems to be using sound in a very unique and distinctive way differently than most other filmmakers do. And I'm kind of curious, have you guys seen him and his approach to sound evolve over the years? Gary's smiling. He knows, he knows where this is. Like, you know, the, 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 look, the, there's, there have been the conversations out there about dialogue. And, you know, I, I, I tend to think of, of Nolan as using dialogue as almost like a sound design element, you know, and he's just thinking about this in a very different way than most filmmakers are. And I, I love the way that he plays with sound effects and dialogue and music. It's sort of like, you know, kind of they're all leading up to the same thing. So I'm kind of curious, what do you guys have conversations about that with him? Have you seen his approach to how he uses sound evolve over the course of the films that you've worked on with him? Yeah, I've seen it evolve. I mean, of the, the four of us here, I've been on, I think I've been on the longest. I was on with Batman Begins all the way through. Richard came on on Prestige, which was the next film after. Um, and yeah, the the process has evolved. And I think that just like any great artist, Chris's you know methodology and philosophy has been growing and changing. And that's an amazing process to witness. Um, we joked around a, at least one movie, maybe two movies back about, you know, we get the masterclass in filmmaking. We're watching Chris make his films. And it's, it is an honor to be present for that. I, um, yeah, it's, it's changed. Uh, it's changed over time, but I think that for every film that we do, we are applying a really unique perspective to it. We're coming at it in a unique way. We're not saying, well, here's what we did on the last one and here's what worked and here's what didn't work. We're coming at it with a real refreshed perspective and asking ourselves, if we're going to ask ourselves a question and and have that conversation amongst our team, what does this film need? What are we going to do? What are we going to apply with this unique project to give it its own unique signature? Um, And, you know, like any great artist, they're going to grow and I've had the honor of watching it. And I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing. That's what's so fun and challenging and satisfying about working with Chris is that 
you don't have a blueprint, that you are really trying to do something new with every film. And, um, and that's the benefit of not doing a lot of talking about it. Just do it and, and respond to the doing. And, um, uh, you know, it's not theoretical. It's, it's what is emotionally impactful. That's the, the key important thing. And, um, and all of these elements, sound design, music, dialogue, they're all storytelling um, uh, uh, tools. And uh, Chris wants to use them all to the max. Except for ADR. <laughs> no, honestly, like if there's if there's one thing that that he's kind of you know grown, but this is an old old news, really. He believes in that original synchronous production. That production is he he selected that take for a reason, and it's not one reason; it's for a lot of reasons. And the sound behind it is one of those reasons. And we're going to do everything we can to enable that to play. You know, that's our job. Even the group, we we have have. For the last, well, for a long time now, we've recorded all of our group, all of our group that's appropriate to record outside. We've recorded it outside, and um, you know, with the same perspective as would exist in the in the film. So, you know, the goal is to bring it in, and it's going to sound like production. And um, and we work really hard to make the group not sound like group ADR, but sound like production voices. Yeah, more props to Dave Bach. He will not just mic them close. He will get midfield mics. He'll get far field mics. D- Dave Bach and Eric Potter. Eric Potter is the recordist on these on these adventures. Um, and yes, uses a lot of microphones. That's all the questions I had. Any final thoughts before I wrap out and let you guys go? Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank Thanks you. for having me too for the first time. Absolutely. <laughs> guys, congratulations on the Academy Award nomination and a fantastic film. Thank you guys so much for coming on the Dolby Podcast. Willie, Kevin, Gary, Richard, always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks, thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to Willie, Richard, Gary, and Kevin for joining us on the podcast today. And best of luck to them on March 10th at the 96th Academy Awards, which are going to be coming to you live from the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. You can still catch our panel's stunning work on Oppenheimer. It is playing right now in select theaters as well as streaming in Dolby Vision. And on February 16th, it is going to be coming to Peacock. You can find links to all of those and more in our show notes. And extra special thanks to our friends at Universal for helping us put this conversation together during a very hectic award season. And speaking of awards, as I mentioned up top, this episode is part of our continuing coverage of the Academy Awards. If you'd like to hear more conversations with fellow Oscar nominees in this category and more, be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. Many of these awards are tough to pick and predict, and we will continue to offer these in-depth conversations filled with unique insights into the work of each of these nominated films, which may make it just a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you're an Academy voter or you simply want to do better in your annual office pool for the Oscars. And if you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Marroquin. Thank you for joining us.